Hear now the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you and some new faces. It's always a privilege and honor to worship the Lord and at this time share the word of God with you all. As we begin, let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid the servant now in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We've ended our sermon series on 1 Corinthians and I feel like some of you may be anxious what is he going to talk about next? He better not talk about me. So I just want to alleviate any anxiety that anybody may have by starting off by saying I'm going to talk about you today. But the question I would like to start with is what is wrong with our country today? I bet if I split you up all into smaller groups and I ask this question, what is wrong with our country today? I bet we could have a lot of riveting conversations and stories I would love to also hear. There are a lot of theories floating around today. However, I have found one that kind of seems to hit it a little better on the nose. So I want to start with a French polymath. His name is René Girard. Some of you may be familiar. Some of you may not. He came up with something called the mimetic theory. And I remember once mentioning in a sermon the difference between mimesis and poiesis. And I believe I lost a lot of people that night. But this morning, I just want to very simply put that mimesis is imitation via human action, okay? Mimesis is imitation via human action. So what does this have to then to do with desire or what Girard would call mimetic desire? And this is what he would say, desire as distinguished from animal appetite is always aroused by 
the desire of another. In Girard's explication of that statement, he would state that the desire must be invented because desire not natural is not natural if it's not animal desire or something that we would think is something that we would need out of necessity, like desire, because you have this need. But outside of that, it's something almost unnatural, something almost inhuman, but at the same time human. Because sometimes when we look at desire, it's sometimes very human for us to have this desire. But sometimes when we look at that same desire, it sometimes feels very inhuman to have that desire. And then he would go on to explain that there is this triangular relationship between desire, object, model, subject. But I'm not going to explain that. I'm just going to explain it with one illustration. Hopefully, it'll kind of get and hit that point of what mimetic desire is. A mimetic desire, or the imitative desire, is something that we, play, we see played out constantly. One easy example is to see it by imagining a room full of toys. Imagine there's a room full of toys. And this happens even in our children here. Even if the room is completely filled with toys, and, and this almost invariably always happens, you see the kids play together long enough, something will happen. What's that? There is one toy one kid will pick up, and he's going to have a lot of fun with it. Another kid sees him having fun with that toy, and what will the other kid try to do? He'll try to take away that toy. But why? Let's simplify that illustration even more. Imagine a room full of toys again, but this time it's exactly the same toy. There's no difference between any toy. It's exactly the same toy, a blue race car. And then you have the original boy come in, in the first example, comes into the room. He takes and finds one of these blue race cars and he starts to play with it. But when you introduce the second boy into the room, which again is full of the exact same toy, what will he want to play with? And that's right. The blue race car that the first boy was playing with. Why? Well, the theory, mimetic theory, goes something like this. We are mimetic beings. We naturally do things by imitation, and the imitation is the force that shapes human desire. People desire things because someone else, and this time the model, someone else did it first. Even if you are perfectly happy with a toy that you had, when you see someone else play with a toy, and it could be any toy, it could be the exact same toy is the point, Mimetic desire is birthed, and we want to play with that toy. I want to feel what you feel. I want that feeling that this person is feeling when they have that toy. I want that feeling for myself. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a two-year-old boy playing with a blue race car or a middle-aged man wanting to drive a Maserati. We know that this desire, we know this desire, and we are actually immersed in it. I told my wife the other day I had a dream, and it was I found the perfect watch band. It's weird. Like, I don't, I don't have dreams often, but I found the perfect watch. So I have this watch that you can change watch bands, and every watch band that I have bought 
is not good. It's not comfortable. I just don't like it. It's either too hard, too soft, the plastic digs into your wrist, just garbage. So I was looking like for a good while, what's a good watch band? And I actually had a dream of finding the perfect watch band. And in my dream, I was like, oh. Anyway, but we have this desire. We're immersed in it. We know it and we recognize it. If I tell you examples of it, a young girl posts on Instagram a picture of herself with her new boyfriend, smiling and enjoying food at the newest trending hot dog, sushi, restaurant, whatever it is. Her ex, whom she hasn't talked to in months, starts to text her the following day. That's mimetic desire. A young man introduces his girlfriend to all his friends at a bar one night. And then he starts to notice that none of his friends really have any interest in her. So then he starts to think second thoughts. Is she the right one for me? Should I continue to date her? Maybe you watched medical shows growing up and dramas growing up in your youth and you went into the medical field because you were convinced that you would love the field only to hate it every step of the way. Okay, maybe this is getting too real for some of you, but I just want to point out that this is basically mimetic desire. Advertising agencies, they have known this and used this for decades. They don't just show us a product. They don't go, look at this vacuum, it sucks, right? No, they show us something. They show us someone enjoying that product. They show an attractive person taking a sip of that perfectly made latte. And now they get it now because... It's not only about modeling the object, about, but also being the subject. So like having that triangulating desire. And then you're starting to see it. And these are the good ads that get you, that you remember at, in, like during the Super Bowl. And they start, they're starting to get this. And it's very dangerous, but they're starting to get this. You see in ads now, people wanting the things that we want, to, that we should want to like. So they want you to like a product. So in TV or in whatever media that you use, you'll see a person wanting that object. And you're like, oh, I also would like to eat that really delicious, good-looking burger. As you see another person wanting to eat that delicious, good-looking burger. For some reason, I'm really hungry right now. I wasn't hungry before, but I want that burger. That's mimetic desire. He says another thing, Rene Girard. He says, imitative nature of desire. The imitative nature of desire leads to conflict. And this is when you have a boy in daycare. They would spot a dump truck in the corner of the room that no one is playing with. No one has any care for that dump truck. But this one boy spots it at the corner of the room. And then as he goes up to play with that dump truck that no one else has played with, once he goes up to play with that dump truck, there is an all-out war in the classroom to grab that toy. So what is mimetic desire really? Mimetic desire is what the Bible calls envy. Envy brings out all-out war. 
envy and malice is put together in the scriptures. When envy is mentioned in Paul's letters, it's put together with malice and violence because they go hand in hand. And here we are, we just think envy is envy, you know? Covetousness, maybe that's the 10th commandment, but isn't it just a small commandment? It's all the way on the bottom, right? It's not a big deal, right? You may think. Even if you did envy, no one admits, no one really admits that this is a sin that they're struggling with. When you have these really deep sessions of sharing things with people, no one really goes, I really am struggling with envy. But the scriptures warn us about envy. The scriptures warn us about having this kind of mimetic desire where we long to have something that someone else has. Romans 1, 28, 29, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Envy is no small sin. It's put up with what we think is really bad, things like murder. Titus 3.3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What if this kind of desire was the start then, if you think about it, of almost every strife that ever was, that we could ever think of and remember was recorded historically? What if this kind of desire was the start of every single piece and act of war? René Girard may have coined the terms for mimetic theory or to mimetic rivalry, but the scriptures show us this kind of exact thought way before, thousands of years before. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, the teacher writes this, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That should blow you away. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And you're like, what? Everything that I'm doing is because of mimetic desire and more specifically envy? The job that you have right now is from envy? The person you want to date or are dating or engaged to or married to now, that's from envy? The food that you want to eat right now after this is from envy, and envy leads to violence? How? How so? Well, it started in the garden with Eve, the fruit, and the serpent. There you already see this kind of triangular relationship of desire. Eve was perfectly fine eating of any fruit in the garden. All this fruit is a room full of fruit, there were tons of toys in that classroom. And then the serpent comes and mimics desire for the forbidden fruit. And he starts off by saying, did God 
actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And after she answers, he tells Eve, the serpent tells Eve, that whatever she heard isn't true, that the fruit is actually really, really good. That's when you see the scripture show us, that's when Eve noticed it, noticed the fruit, and it was good looking. It was good for food and a delight to the eyes is what the scripture says. It was good for food and a delight to the eyes. After that desire was implanted, she was like, that's when it looked good. Man, that really looks good right now. And then she would take and eat it and then give it to her husband who would eat it as well. It was then they were kicked out of the garden. Death was introduced, and we even saw the first murder happen in the very next generation. Almost every social movement now, I'm going from, yeah, Genesis 3 all the way to 2021 November, almost every social movement now is based on this very concept of envy. You can call it by any other name, equity, social justice, whatever you want. But at the base level of it all, these movements is envy. I don't have because you have it, and now I will take it from you. That's what it is. It's this idea that the entire world and all its systems is some kind of zero-sum game. Zero-sum game means if I have, that means you don't have. If you have, that means I don't have. That's a zero-sum game. It's like there's this one piece of, like one pecan pie, right? And then if I take a large portion, then you can't take that large portion. So we see the entire world as this one pie. And then we see every situation like the little boy in the blue race car. It's because he has it. I don't have it. Therefore, I must take it. Split up any group in history. Split up any group in any society, in any kind of human formation, any group at all. It's because this race has it, this other race doesn't. It's because this gender has it, this other gender doesn't, or these other genders don't, whatever it is these days. But it's because this political party has it, we must take back the power, right? Doug Wilson, in one of his talks on Envy, would say this, and I quote, socialism, feminism, environmentalism, Marxism, racism, communism, and the granddaddy of them all, egalitarianism, are not the intellectual problems that cause certain downstream intellectual mistakes to be made. What he's saying is, we all intellectualize these movements, these, all these isms, is like, this is the intellectual basis for this. This is the intellectual or the rationale, the reason for this. But this is not why we have these movements, because in the end, it is not an intellectual problem. Wilson would argue that these are actually intellectual rationalizations for sin. Because as much as these social justice and equity warriors want to dress themselves as righteous purveyors of fairness, it was never about being satisfied. It was always about taking and taking and then some more taking. If you are someone well-off, and here, here's how you prove this, if you are someone really well-off, and someone wants to come 
and take 50%, half of whatever you have, for whatever reason, taxes, reparations, equity, welfare, call it whatever you want. They want to take half of all that you have. And then they'll call it something really nice, really, you know, something that sounds pleasing to the ears. Like, you know, I'm going to come over. I'm going to, Pastor Paul's here. He had a nice vacation this week and you were missed. You know, I, I don't like that. Why does he get to have a vacation and I don't? I got to get stuck in the office with these four rambunctious youth, right? So, you know what? Next time, I'm going to take away half his vacation. All the things that he would have spent it on, I'm going to take half of that. Whatever you want to call it. You know what? After I take half your stuff, Pastor Paul, I'm going to call it this. Saving the world from hunger and environmental destruction. That's what I'm going to call it. You could literally call it whatever you want. How about that one? Saving the world from hunger and environmental destruction. Let's say Pastor, I take from Pastor Paul 50% of all that he has. Pastor Paul asks God for more. Please, Lord, bless me. You know, this has been taken. And God gives Pastor Paul even more than I ever took away from him. Do you think I would be satisfied? Would those that took from you, would they be satisfied? The answer is absolutely not. If someone hates you, the fact that what you have even after he took it from you and God gave you more, he would not hate you less. In fact, I would bet all my Bitcoin that he would hate you more. This is why we're seeing what we're seeing. Even though these, these theories are being disproven, debunked, shown evidence that they won't work. Like communism does not work. Like even if you show evidence after evidence, people who are on this train, all the isms mentioned before will only continue to double down. They'll use past injustices. They'll anchor themselves to it because past injustices are true. They did happen, but they'll anchor themselves to it. And then from that anchorage point, they'll move to wherever they want. You know why? Because they believe they are entitled to it. There were injustices in the past. There's no doubt about it. If you take any group, and I'm going to go back, if you take any group of people, split them into groups, whatever way you want, there will undoubtedly be injustices that one group would have done to the other, the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and free, male and female. Because the question was never if there were any injustices, but if you rationalize sin, if you say, you know what, because of these injustices, I get to do these things. I get to break things. I get to steal. I get to rob. I get to hurt. I get to commit violence. If you rationalize sin, whether it's through this guise of pseudo-intellectualism or just on pure emotional standpoint, it will inevitably escalate and escalate and escalate to bloodshed and to murder. It's not just in the scriptures we see the first murder when society was being developed, but other ideologies, other histories, other people groups, they all have a first murder. Isn't that fascinating? They all have a first murder because it was necessary for them to make sense of life and they needed for some reason to have this first murder. When you have desires, and when we read today, or passions, 
It's from the Greek word hedone, right? Hedone is where we get hedonism. It's pleasures. When you have these passions or these pleasures that you want and you don't get these pleasures, the Bible says you murder. So when you first read it, it's like, that's a little extreme. I mean, I have passions, but I don't murder people. But yes, you do. That's the point. Yes, you do. When you have a society that has envy continuing to build, saying envy is good, let's continue to envy. Let's not say anything bad about envying the things other people have because they don't deserve it. I deserve it for whatever reason. You see that as it's continuing to build, critical mass is going to come. And then sociologically speaking, there has to be a release. There needs to be a scapegoat. Without the scapegoat, the society will end up consuming itself. And just to give a brief example again, this is why you can have bitter rivalry between two groups, like let's say New York Yankee fans and the Boston Red Sox fans. They hate each other. Like I had a friend who was a diehard Yankee fan. He went up to Boston. He wanted a, a tour of Boston. His first time there, he as long, for as long as I've known him, he always wore this Yankee hat. It was so raggedy, but he always wore it. I think he showered with it. I never saw him without this hat. And he would go up on this tour bus in Boston, and people were giving stickers to welcome to Boston, putting it on their chest or shoulder, whatever was appropriate. And when they saw him, they put it on his hat, on his symbol. Yankee fans and Boston fans, they don't, uh, they don't really like each other to say the least, but how can you get these two groups to come together into one room and not kill each other? Well, you put them in a room, and then you go, look over there to those cheating Astros. That's what you do. Astros, in this case, are the scapegoats. Look at over there, those cheating guys. A scapegoat is where you place all your sins on this outside party, and then exile that outside party for your sins. That's what it is. All this angst, malice, strife that's built up in your society, you see that historically it's always happened this way. Because of your envy, it needs to go somewhere. People are envious. They want the things that you have, and then this angst and violence starts to build. So society starts to place it on a scapegoat. Otherwise, that society would implode. One of the most famous short stories ever written was by Shirley Jackson. And uh, most of you probably know, I assume that almost all of you know this story because it was probably reading, uh, required reading in middle school. But in the short story that she wrote called The Lottery, you see a small town getting together for this big day. The lottery is happening. People are nervous, they're excited, the weather's beautiful, right? And they all come together, there's slips that, that are passed out at the night and things like that. They're all coming together because they want to know who gets to win the lottery, who gets to get picked. It's a whole town affair, there's like 300 people, they want to know. But as you keep on reading the lottery, it's not the kind of lottery that you thought it was. The one that gets picked at the end doesn't win some prize, instead... What happens is they get stoned to death. One of the major themes in that short story is scapegoating. The town needed to have a good harvest. There were other towns also farming near them. 
And you want to have that good harvest, maybe even more than the other towns. And it made the reader wonder if every society then has some sort of mechanism that's built in to relieve this built-up angst, violent, violence, and rage. Instead of war between nations, let's hold the Olympics. Instead of fighting within local communities, let's play basketball, determine, and determine the athletic pecking order, whatever it is. This is what the world knows. But the scriptures go beyond what we know in the world to offer us the truth, the real truth of our situation. These temporal remedial measures to satisfy our bloodlust when desires are peaked will not last. Envy will only lead to more envy, more envy to murder. Murder will lead to more murder. And the scriptures show us that it's because our desires are first Our desires are disordered. Instead of friendship with God, we want friendship with the world. And friendship with the world is declaring war against God. There is no winning. Warring against God is to smash yourself upon this great rock, hoping the rock breaks to pieces before you do. There is no stopping your demise. Envy is a free fall unto that great rock. So how's the process reversed? I want to tell you, you can't. It's impossible. Every thought, ideology, religious tradition, it's all about, well, if you do this, you can stave off the wrath of God or you can stave off this inner turmoil that you have, bad karma, whatever you want to call it. But the truth is that no one has been able to save themselves from the final destination of that free fall, of that path. The wages of sin is death. And subsequently, all of mankind from Adam and Eve, they all taste death. In death, we are torn from any good that we could have ever tasted. Any good that we could taste, hear, smell, touch, see, or experience in death, we're torn from these things. You're torn from the experience of holding a newborn in your arm. It's torn away. You're torn from feeling your mother's embrace. That's what death does. It tears you away from your mother's embrace. And the word of God shows us that it's even more than that. Eternally, we are to experience the wrath of God being poured out. You know, you want true justice? That's true justice. We did not do what we were created to do. In fact, we were created to be a dwelling place for God. We were to be set apart, holy, to be his bride. Because ultimately, envy is malcontent against the creator. Going back to Adam and Eve, it's distrust in his commands. It's the belief that God doesn't want what's best for me, so I will go against the very nature of God. James is showing us that envy isn't just some worldly issue between people groups, as bad as it is. It's the issue between you and God. When you envy You go directly against God. And here we are talking about mimetic desire and envy, saying how it's innate in all of us, how it's inescapable that we all desire that one thing. 
But when you envy, you go against God. Is there a way out? If you smacked a guy much larger than you, and I asked the same question, how would you answer that? If you smacked a guy much larger than you, and then you go, is there a way out? Probably not, right? Probably not, perhaps. But in all likelihood, you will get beat, right? What if the guy that smacked you was twice as large, three times as large, infinitely larger? Is there a way out? The answer is no, you have no way out. You are about to get crushed. You have no means. And this is where the Bible then goes. You have no means, but, in verse 6, for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. But he gives more grace. It is by grace that you have been saved. You have no means of saving yourself from this destructive path, starting with envy, but for the grace of God. In the Old Testament, God actually set up a sacrificial system with two goats in Leviticus. One goat, you would kill and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, on the tabernacle. The other goat, you would place the sins on that goat and set that goat out into the wilderness. So one pointed to the price of death that must be paid for sin, and the other pointed to the exile away from God's people and God himself, because sin must be taken away. Both had to happen in the punishment for sin. Both of these things had to happen in the Day of Atonement. In the Bible, the scapegoat had a more complete understanding of sin. It's both death and exile. There are Greek mythologies, there are other myths out there, like whether it's Oedipus or someone else, that where you need a victim, like you need a scapegoat. Remember I said every, every society, culture, religion, they need a scapegoat. But there is a key difference between these mythologies and Christ. In every myth, the scapegoat, the victim, they're actually guilty. They actually have sin. People refer to them as gods after because through their death, they were able to unite people and move them to this higher plane of existence. But they were not innocent. They were guilty. Oedipus was guilty of murdering his parents. But Christ, Christ was innocent. Christ was innocent, and he was put to death. Thereby, his sacrifice was once and for all, for all eternity, sufficient and effective. But for the grace of God, meant that we deserve what Christ took upon himself. God doesn't rationalize sin away. Instead, he took the very punishment of that sin upon himself, and in that he saves those that call upon his name. And if you've gained this understanding, if you understand what I am saying right now, it is by grace you can hear the words of salvation. And this humbles the believer. We are not proud. We're not boastful. We're humble because of what has been done for us. And therefore, and here's the sequence, therefore, submit yourselves to God you who once declared war against God, submit to him as Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Desi the desire that he had once invoked, don't listen to him. Resist and he will flee. And finally, how can you stay pure? Unlike Adam and Eve, draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. These three things, this is the life of repentance that Martin Luther recognized when he read the scriptures. Repentance is to turn away from the sin that once caused us to war against God and now to turn to him in his righteous ways. So you turn away from sin and you turn to God in his righteous ways. In that repentance, then, James has some applications. How seriously, then, should you take sin like envy? How seriously should you take your repentance? And he writes, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Isn't this a little harsh, though? Doom and gloom much, James? That might, that's what some might say. Some might respond, I'm not that fire and brimstone kind of guy, though. But if you truly recognize the evil of sin and envy, then you would treat it as such. Sin is to try and lift yourself up to God's position. So then you should recognize that and cleanse your hands. This refers to the outside. Cleanse your hands. What you do with your body then matters. Use your body as a testament to how you view God. Cleanse your hands. And then it says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Your double allegiance is an affront against God. You cannot be friends with the world and be friends with God. If you want to come near to God, you must cleanse your outside and your inside, your body and your spirit. If you know the depths of depravity, of your sin, you would be wretched and mourn and weep. This is the same message in the Old Testament too. We see this in Joel when the Lord spoke to Israel. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And it continues on though. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And that part James succinctly puts together as, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Listen to God. Obey God. Imitate God. We are indeed mimetic creatures, we, but we are to imitate God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate God. And I think that's a profound statement. He didn't simply say imitate God. So why did he insert himself there? Was he proud? Was he boastful? Because there is a call for us to imitate God and also for those of us to imitate others who imitate God. You imitate the elders that are above you who are imitating God. You imitate the Apostle Paul who's imitating God. That's how society has changed. Your children should imitate you as you imitate God. No longer do we then follow the medic desires of evil. No longer do we have envy ruling over us where we just want to have that one blue race car. The desires have changed because we have been changed 
by the grace of God. If envy dominates your life, the scripture gives us the remedy. By the grace of God, we are to repent of our sins, weep, wail, and mourn. That's repentance. When you look at your sin, you are to weep, wail, and mourn. And this is why, I'm going back to the historical aspect, the world can no longer return to paganism. It is impossible. Paul even said this in his uh, sermon or speech in Mars Hill. He would say, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The world can never go back to the paganistic rituals it once was. You can say all you want. Say his name and go, or say her name. Whatever paganistic ritual you want to return to, it will never return to that because God once overlooked it, but now he commands people of everywhere to repent. That's how you change. And that's how inevitably society is changed through repentance. The further this nation or any nation then turns away from God to embrace envy, murder, malice, strife, and then scapegoating, the closer it does come to destruction. It is inevitable. But we have been given the word of God. We no longer have to live bound and held by the sin of envy, but by the grace of God. We have been given something else to look at, something more pure, something more beautiful, something more desirable. And there is no zero sum because that desirable something is a someone, and that's Jesus Christ. We are to look at Jesus Christ and grab hold of him. And that's when we realize no longer do we need to envy, but we can truly love. We can truly love. One of the highlights of the last book study that we did was from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the love that we've been given in Christ. That's the love that we can live out in this new society that God has built. The kingdom of God that has been brought forth through Jesus Christ, that's what we can live by now. No longer are we going to be united in scapegoating or sin, but we are united then in love. And this is how we ought to live. If you are living in the sin of envy, you're following others, you're, this mimetic desire is getting to you, then repent. Turn away. Don't do the things that will destroy you, but know that the grace of God has been given to you because of his love for you. Change and so that you can be like Christ and mimic him. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us uh, this morning. Lord, we uh, readily admit now that we can tend to ignore or lighten or just dismiss the things that we ought not to. And especially when it comes to this sin of envy, it has become subversive in our lives or maybe some of us, we think that it's just a natural part of who we are. But God, help us not to fall into this deceit and this lie. But Lord, help us to rely now and solely depend and lean upon the saving grace that you offer to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. That he would not only justify us, relieve us of our sin, but Lord God, by the Holy Spirit, we would also be sanctified, becoming more and more like you, mimicking the true Holy One. Let's take this time to pray and let's lift up our prayers to God. And perhaps the Holy Spirit has opened up your understanding to recognize maybe envy was a big part of your life, more than you ever thought. But know that you are not to be trapped in it. God has given you his son, Jesus Christ, so that you can truly be free. And if the son sets you free, if the father sets you free through the son, you are free indeed. So let's pray and lift up our hearts to God.